Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I am your other co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And together we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare moment... It would mean the world to us if you drop a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews help boost us up the algorithm and are a great way for us to find new listeners. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on so many different social medias. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry. And on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a whole website just for the podcast. It is closetalking.com where you can find all the past episodes of the show. And Cardboard Box Productions has a newsletter, Unboxed. So if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind the scenes stuff on Close Talking and on all the literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. All right, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to this all-new episode of Close Talking. I'm your co-host, Jack Roster munley and uh, I'm going to take you on over to the Minneapolis air guitar and drum band, one-man band. <laughs> Y'all can't see what he's doing. I was doing but... a little, uh, doing a little, and then I was going, party time, excellent, et cetera, et cetera. Aurora, Illinois. Was near where <laughs> we both grew up. <laughs> Great poop pond. Don't play stairway to heaven. We know what things are. Yeah. Um, I think it might be because we keep singing the name of this poet. Um, Sherry. That's Shimoda. true. <laughs> um, but who yes. are you? What are you doing here? What's your name? Oh, oh yeah. Um, well, I'm the other co-host, Connor McNamara Stratton. Um, yeah, this is the first snow-filled recording for me i've had a few big snows it's nice and bright it's great bringing the best from the midwest yeah i love the snow heck yeah um but we are here not to talk about snow so much as we are to talk about soil because today we are talking about a poem all about well a lot of things but it's right there in the title uh topsoil in repentance by sherry shinoda Yes, I am very excited to talk about this poem. It is incredibly good. Um, and yeah, this the poet is uh, amazing. Um, the name will be familiar book, to you if you heard our yes. episode about the National Book Awards. Yes, her book Mummy Eaters was a long list for the National Book Awards this year in 2022. Um, is published with uh university of nebraska press it was the um winner of the sillerman first book prize for african poets and i think this poem is maybe not in that collection i don't believe it is um but the mummy eaters collection um i'm very excited to read it it quote follows in the footsteps of an imagined ancestor um 
Sherry Shinoda is was born in Cairo, Egypt, um, and is now in the the states. And the imagined ancestor is one of the daughters of the house of Akhenaten. Is that uh, Akhenaten? Okay. Yeah. Um, in the 18th dynasty, Shinoda forges an imagined path through her ancestors' mummification and journey to the afterlife. Um, and then parallel to this exploration run the implications of colonialism on her passage. And yeah, as we mentioned which, during that episode, yeah. mummy eating was a real phenomenon, particularly in Europe, as like a medicinal practice where people would eat bits of mummies and burial cloths to be healthy or whatever. Uh, spoiler alert, it, that's not how that works. But also, obviously, there are a lot of resonances with resource exploitation and consumption. And it's going to be fascinating to read this book because it sounds like a lot of incredible stuff going on there. Yes. And this is slightly tangential to the poem, but Sherry Shinoda is also a pediatrician making her the next in our growing list of poets who are also in uh, the medical profession, um, joining Seema Yasmin, Fatty Judah, um, William Carlos Williams. Um, Got to get and... the classics. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, just saying that again, I am always in awe of those who uh, can do both and and I think it uh, yeah her I will say her precision uh, uh, to detail I think is at least if I learned that some of that came from her um, time in medicine it would not surprise me <laughs> that makes sense. And it's not just poetry. She also had a uh, a novel come out in 2021 called The Lightkeeper. And uh, in her work as a doctor, she's also done a lot because she has worked uh, with children who are uh, affected by armed conflict and has even participated in Senate briefings. So a lot going on in all realms of professional and creative life for Sherry Shinoda, uh, the awe increases with every line of her biography um so something that i think will come up quite a bit during our discussion of the poem but i think it's important to note here is that she is coptic american and coptic um, that would refer to the fact that she is part of the orthodox christian church so yeah without further ado uh here is topsoil in repentance by sherry shinoda on my mind daily with the insistence of a metronome is that thin granular layer, rich hummus, spare humility, black earth daily lifted and blown into the Gulf of Mexico. Thinnest of salvations with a margin of error wide as the pink gelatinous body of the earthworm, which my spade barely misses, and every time my tines enter the ground, my wrist twists the damp loam. I breathe easier to see them wriggling, unburied, feeling the light, burrowing back down, aerating this earth we have packed down with our culpability, this immense density of earth, only the topmost of which can support the unimaginable numbers of us, our great warm swarm 
squinting up in immense sunlight. I hear the silent swish and tick, the back-and-forth rhythm, the last few seconds before midnight, the enormity of the loan which has been called in full. The hazy buzzing of the furry bees busy in the branches above my exposed neck on any given day, a stay for a little while longer of execution. So this is a great poem. There's a lot going on in it on a lot of levels. <laughs> Usually yeah. we do our narrative rundown. Uh, the narrative is maybe we maybe we've got some problems with the planet and we're the cause and we should maybe think about that a little bit. <laughs> I think we we often start on a pretty high level, but because you specifically called it out and it's, I think, so apparent in this poem, the precision of the language and like the really interesting internal rhymes and sound resonances, maybe that's the place to start for this one, I think. And then we'll, I'm sure, talk about climate crisis and religion and all those things but i kind of want to start with the words because there's so many you know wrist twists and warm swarm and time my tines enter the ground like the the number of internal rhymes and half rhymes like full internal rhymes that are going on in here is really noticeable to me um i'm sure you have thoughts <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, there is quite a lot. Um, and it was wonderful listening to you read it because you really, I just like, yeah, you can just hear it so intensely. Um, this is a good one to and, read aloud. Yeah, it really is. Um, That's part of how I selected it when I was reading. I was reading several different poems by her because... I was so captivated by the idea of the Mummy Eaters collection that I was like, hmm, got to find out more. And then when I read this one aloud, <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, this is the one we got to talk about for any number of reasons. But like reading it aloud definitely played a part where it's like, oh, this sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you mentioned a lot of the spots, but yeah, there's just so many um like I almost just want to kind of go through. Do you want to start with one that's, I don't maybe this is one that you want to pull out, but in the first stanza, so this poem is broken into three line stanzas. And in the first one, the first line ends with metronome. And then that gets picked up in the middle of the last line with the word blown. Yeah. And then like kind of, it doesn't quite go for the whole poem. Um, and it's interesting. It kind of goes until sort of the i guess maybe the turn of the poem because like so yeah i mean like as you were saying it, it begins with the metronome and then you know the speaker is is um you know farming or gardening or something with a spade kind of uh messing with the dirt um and kind of thinking about things um but then it returns in this squinting up in immense light I hear the silence swish and tick, the back and forth rhythm. Um, but yeah, metronome. But then and then in the second stanza, um, we have like the earthworm. Um, and then in the third stanza, we have the damp loam. And then in the fourth stanza, we end with our great warm swarm. 
the first four stanzas, there's, you know, it's not like a strict kind of end rhyme like pattern like you might see in a traditional sonnet or something, but you have metronome, earthworm, damp loam, warm swarm, where you got the M's kind of ending, and then the first and the third are kind of gnome and loam, and then the arm and the like the worm and the swarm are like pretty close. Um so those are kind of all and in, it's interesting too because I think they there's those sounds don't disappear in the final two stanzas, but they're not they're not the they don't end any of the lines. Yeah, you have the enormity of the loan that picks up on the loam from earlier. That feels very intentional. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, because enormity has the norm. And then the loan has the O sound. Um, so it's 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 definitely it's definitely there, especially less intense, but immense has some M's and the back and forth rhythm. Um there's there's a little bit of the M coming back. Um and and the M, I mean, it's interesting too now that I'm just like thinking about M's, it's like on my mind daily with the insistence of a metronome is that thin granular layer, rich hummus, spare humility, black earth daily lifted and blown into the Gulf of Mexico. Even when the kind of, you know, there's so many ways, I guess, like that the sounds are connecting and echoing each other. Um so in in some ways it's it's close to rhymes in other ways it's you know the the rich hummus and the spare humility they, they both share the m's that that come in the first line and then as we kind of talked about continue throughout but then there's also the alliteration of hummus and humility um that kind of ties those together it doesn't quite i don't know if that answers your question um but I love it. Well, one last thing, just kind of like, um, because I think my, and I'm I'm not actually sure. I haven't like, I will probably be fully thinking it through over the course of the the episode as we talk. Um, but my general like thoughts about like sound in poetry. I mean, it does so many different kinds of things, you know, um, but one of the things I think is, is I, I think of it kind of as like camera movement in a movie where it's like, you're kind of using the, the textures of the words to sort of guide and direct focus, um, and then like link things together or set things apart, um, and that's kind of like because in a in a you know in a poem as as sonically rich as this, I I remember in my like a freshman year English class in college, it's like some Shakespeare sonnet. It's like the last two words of the couplet rhyme, and it's like they rhyme because it's like those ideas are connected. It's like love and loss, what you must leave ere long, blah blah blah, or something, and so. I don't think anything is as quite um, as neat 
as that kind of thing. So I, I like to think about it, especially because it's so dense that um, I think it's like a, a, a way of pacing and directing attention in a way, um, at least would be my initial thought. And then I'd have to kind of <laughs> uh, we'll have to dig into the language a little deeper to see if that that holds true. But that's my like first uh, that would be my first stab. <laughs> That's super cool. And that was exactly kind of what I was going to ask about, which is like, so, you know, we've got all this really interesting language stuff going on, but like, why, you know, because it, <laughs> it's, you know, it's like a fun thing to do when you're writing a poem, like, Ooh, can I put some alliteration in here? Can I figure out how to make this language a little more resonant or a little softer or harsher on the ear? Like poetry on some level can be kind of a language game. And that's a lot of the joy that poets get out of it can be that aspect of writing it. But then this is a poem that has some big thematic concerns. So how does it necessarily like, how does it interact with that? And that's kind of where I was going with it, where I was looking and you said both of these words where you said density of language and digging into it. And I was looking at the kind of middle stanza of the poem, this earth we have packed down with our culpability, this immense density of earth. You have the repetition mm -hmm. of the word earth, but also so much of this poem is about how the earth has been packed down in a lot of different ways. There's a lot of different meaning in that phrasing <laughs> and mm -hmm. we'll get into it, but the, the language itself becomes dense. The language replicates the, the, the density of earth, only the top most of which can support the unimaginable numbers of us are great warm swarm. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the direction I was going. I was going sort of the, ecological soil science route <laughs> of like yeah the the density of language does all the things you're talking about it slows you down it, it puts you into a lot of different spaces but i think it also has some pretty strong thematic resonance with this idea that the poem is is talking about especially when you've got topsoil in the title that is the least dense part of the earth the rest of it is the really dense part yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's really right. And and then as you were sort of talking about that, I was kind of thinking about, you know, um, like, and this, maybe we're getting to, maybe I'll get us to climb it <laughs> quicker hey, than- We knew than, we were uh, getting there. Let's do it. Let's yeah, go. Yeah. Um, well, because, you know, kind of the, the returning image- um, that happens, you know, that's set up in the beginning and then comes back in the last two stanzas is, is, is that metronome, you know, on my mind daily with the insistence of a metronome. Um, and then, you know, it comes back. I hear the silent swish and tick the back and forth rhythm the last few seconds before midnight, the enormity of the loan, which has been called in full. Um, and, you know, like climate change isn't, isn't mentioned sort of um specifically here but you know we have got a lot of earth stuff and it's a it's you know yeah it's it makes me more confident of the reading to know that i think you were kind of thinking about it in the same similar way the like the climate change crisis thing it's like it's it makes sense to think about it as a loan that is being called which is to say you know the primary drivers 
of it are, you know, our, our burning of fossil fuels. And so if you can think about that, it's like we're extracting shit from the earth and burning the coal. And that is in the short term, like giving us lots of energy, like literally. But then in the longer term, it's like, okay, now we got all this carbon dioxide that's going to hang out in the atmosphere for the next several hundred to millennia years or whatever. And then, you know, now we are, you know, feeling the effects of all of that usage. And so it's like, it's, it's like you've taken out a loan and you got a shitty deal from a subprime lender before the financial crisis. And it's an adjustable <laughs> rate mortgage with a ballooning interest payment in the first five years, no interest at all. You're just cruising, you got your new house. And then it's like, Oh, you didn't read the fine print. Suddenly interest is 30%. Guess you're fucked and you're going to be foreclosed and you got to pay like out your everything. Yep. Um, and yeah. And so that's kind of like, in terms of the logic of the, um, you know, the metaphor. Um, but then when you think about it, the, the other aspect is the, the speakers like knowing of it <laughs> and the knowing of it is the, the metronome, the kind of ticking of time that we are just, um, before the kind of the midnight um, and I kind of think about that, like, like that doomsday clock thing where, um, yeah, no, how it, close are we, much, how close yeah. are we to nuclear Armageddon? Yeah, no, it, it definitely feels that way. And so I think, so then another thing with, with the languages, partly I think too, because the, the metronome and the rhythm has, you know, specifically been invoked, it's like a great extra embodiment that the poem is so is so rhythmic itself um and that it you know it has its um own like um swish and tick and back and forth rhythm and i think too cuz to me the ending is so like damn uh and it yeah. really kind of hits hard um oh yeah and yeah and it's like, you know, because it's like, okay, second to last stanza, we're like the enormity of the loan, which has been called in full. You're like, okay, okay, things aren't going so well. Like, we've been hanging out with the worms, which has been nice, but now the stakes are going to be rising again. And then, you know, we get to the last stanza, the hazy buzzing of the furry bees busy in the branches above my exposed neck. And then there's like a comma. And I just think that the way the syntax and the line um, and the line break and everything is laid out here is just like so amazing. Um, but it's like on any given day, a stay, and then there's a line break for a little while longer comma of execution, um, which kind of like delays the execution, which kind of mimics, I think, the stay of execution where you're just like, okay, not today. It's like that stupid um, thing in Princess Bride with the Dread Pirate Roberts where he's like, all right, good talk, but I'm going to 
could probably kill you in the morning or something. And mm-hmm. then he never kills him in the morning or whatever. Or like in there's better references. Game of Thrones, I could make. where Syria Pharrell, the first sort of Bravos, <laughs> is training with Arya Stark, and he tells her, "What do we say to the God of Death? Not today." Hmm. Right. Yes. 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 Exactly. Yes. Um. Travel with yeah. me to Westeros, Connor. <laughs> I the really worst would rather in the world. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. But I think yes. Um. The other part is, I don't know if this is quite true. So, I mean, I was just thinking about the sounds and then thinking about on any given day, a stay for a little while longer of execution, like, especially like execution feels very different in the sounds of what's come before. I don't know if that seems true to you, but especially like, the first line of that stanza is so, you know, it's like out of fucking Tennyson or something. It's like the hazy buzzing of the furry <laughs> bees just, busy yeah, in the like, branches. It's very warm. And yeah, nice. exactly. Like, exactly. Um, and then I just like, you know, there's exposed neck, which has kind of execution in it. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, you know, when we think about the sounds that dominate, the rest of the poem much that we've already mentioned is a lot of those warm sounds, you know, mind daily insistence, metronome, rich hummus, spare humility, salvations, margin, gelatinous earthworm, uh, damp loam, wriggling, burrowing. Um, and there are certain moments of like culpability, um, and it, and I do think that all of that kind of culminates in the, which is kind of what I was thinking about in the beginning about this is like marking the end of the first part and the kind of moving into the turn of, of the most sonic dense part, you know, our great warm swarm, like having warm swarm two rhyming words like right next to each other to me the sound of of execution and to some extent above my exposed neck sounds in such contrast to the real warmth and sonic kind of like rhythm and joy that's coursing through the rest of the poem Mm -hmm. um and i i do feel like especially given how the syntax at the end is kind of a delay to surprise in in a way to bring in the execution like if i don't know i it's hard to say if it's like intentional but it feels like it really works on me where the ending is all the more jarring because also the sounds are so starkly different than um everything that's come before definitely and i think you even get a contrast just from one line to the next where you have the line ending warm swarm and then the line ending swish and tick. It's so sharp compared to warm swarm, which while it does bookend, mm. it still feels like open, inviting, a very nice way of describing humanity in in a sense. <laughs> Maybe swarm isn't the kindest, but like a great warm swarm, you know. Um, also, like 
Okay, so the the metronome idea is introduced as like an imaginary metronome, but how sinister is a silent metronome? Like that just seems like a really sinister idea to me. And when it becomes <laughs> described as like I hear the silent swish and tick, the back and forth rhythm, I'm like, what? The last few seconds yeah. before midnight, like, okay, time is being marked leading up to a breaking point, but also you can't hear the seconds tick away. Like what? Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah. Excuse me. What? Uh, like that's terrifying. Like would prefer you, to hear the tick. <laughs> like think about a nightmare, right? Like this is a nightmare. Like you walk into a room, like in your dream, like, oh, I fell asleep. I ate, you know, I had a big meal before I went to bed. Now I'm having weird, bad food dreams or whatever. I don't know. And so you're there, you're asleep. And then in your dream, you open a door and it's just a room full of metronomes and they're going back and forth, but there is no sound. Like, that's a bad sign. That is the opening of a horror movie. That is awful. I don't like it. I don't like it, Connor. No. No, no, no. No, thank you. No, it's you. so true. It's yeah. like, it's horrible it... and creepy, and I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, so that's creepy. I just wanted to make sure we talked about how creepy that was. Um, yeah. Well, and it, no, but it is creepy, and it's creepy in the same way that I do feel like, I mean. It's always happening. It's always happening. And it it is, you know, like certainly there are there, are, you know, and we're in the US and in the global north where our experience of it is is more so far more um like insulated. You know, there's already at least two groups in the US um that have begun relocating because of climate change. Um there's a Biloxi Choctaw group in Louisiana, and then um you pick people in Newtuk, Alaska, um, or Newtok, and the erosion and the rising sea levels have gotten to the point where their water quality is just so, um, well, A, the land is gone, but then also the water is, the flooding is so bad that it's constantly disrupting um, getting into their water systems. And so they just don't have usable water. So they've literally are making new towns and are going places. And it's, um, anyway, not a coincidence that it is two indigenous nations that are the first to relocate here. And there's but, also, yeah. been, I mean, we don't really talk about it this way, but there have been in some cases forced relocations because of climate. We saw that huge numbers of people after Hurricane Katrina relocated yes. out of Louisiana and out of New Orleans because of the hurricane. And the in the um the Paradise fire or the campfire that destroyed Paradise. Yep. Um California. Yeah. So for a lot of people, the it seems to be that the experience of the climate crisis is um not like a prolonged excruciating acute crisis like those that we just talked about yeah. um but kind of a you know patterns changing um certain natural disasters being worse than usual but the understanding more than anything that the shoe is about to drop or something like that, or that even if the shoe doesn't drop in like the kind of 
sort of way it's often depict apocalypse is depicted in in movies or whatever but you know there could be certain tipping points of you know enough of the arctic melting that permafrost releases enough methane that accelerates climate change which then leads to um other changes which then have feedback loops and then we're suddenly in a you know um uh earth of several magnitudes degrees warmer that it's like it is silent which is creepy i guess is what i'm saying is like the it the description of the silent creepy metronome <laughs> was very resonant to me where it's just like and sometimes i'll just think about it and then i'll be like looking around and i'll be like anyone else hear that and I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Is this hear it, in but... my head or are we all <laughs> like, we're all, we're all seeing this, right? This isn't <laughs> creepy. Yeah, no, I, I think it's very real. And you're right. It's such a great way of describing the way that climate change and climate crisis operates, which is like, oh, there was an earthquake. Oh, there was a wildfire. Well, there seemed to be a lot of wildfires this year. Well, there, was, <laughs> there was, you know, big hurricane. Ooh, seemed to be a lot of hurricanes this year. You know, like it. It's only in the last yep. maybe year or two that those kinds of weather events and things have been described more through the framework of climate crisis, even if people were acknowledging like climate crisis can make hurricanes more powerful and it can make wildfires more continuous and burn for longer and mess up weather patterns and whatever. Now, in the reporting on those actual instances of these things happening, it's like, and by the way, Seems like this is what we mean when we say climate crisis, you know, as opposed mm -hmm. to it being some other thing that is somehow separate from these day to day events. That is that also makes um, makes me think of another element of this poem that I that I really appreciate, which is and actually is the kind of the other element of at least the way that I was seeing the metronome not exactly but it's like the work um that the speaker is doing with the spade and with the tines like that kind of soil work and groundwork and like agricultural work or whatever is like a steady kind of work i don't know i i just it also made me think of of there's something rhythmic potentially in the um the work that the the speaker is doing with the earth and also the fact that just you know like there's the climate and then there's the environment and the two things are like connected but they're not exactly the same climate is like okay long-term weather patterns okay what's the earth's average temperature okay it's rising that's gonna like lead to all these changes and it's kind of this global thing and it affects everything because it's the whole planet of the climate and the Earth's average temperature, blah, blah, blah. But then there's like there there is the environment and it's like, OK, a lot of times for or at least for a while, that was a huge. Focus of the environmental movement, I mean, especially before climate change itself was kind of fully understood, but where you're like, OK, we want to preserve this forest or like we're trying to save this protect this species or um like we don't like acid rain that seems bad um There's things like that which are the ozone layer how'd that get there <laughs> yeah yeah like 
environmental justice movements are like often focusing on like, you know, in Minneapolis, there's like a uh, the Herc, which is like a trash incinerator and it creates energy. And it's like, oh, what do you know? It's like right next to a predominantly black neighborhood. And it's like, OK, the trash incinerator um, is creating is is like polluting the air right around it. And then everyone who lives there has like higher levels of asthma and other sorts of like pollution, like related, you know, issues, things like that. And there is like a connection in the sense that coal mining, coal plants, natural gas plants, the car exhaust, um, you know, digging for oil, like all of those things have extreme environmental costs to them. Like if you live near a power plant or you, you know, there's lots of studies that like if you're within like a hundred feet or whatever of a major highway, like you're getting exposed to a lot of the traffic. And there's a lot of more research coming out now that's like if you have a gas stove, you know, that's that is also creating, you know, in your micro in the micro environment of your home, like you are getting um, pollutants from the natural gas that's uh, powering that oven and that stove. Um Anyway, and so it's like I'm trying to think the two are not often connected in the sort of at least I mean, this is a big generalization, but like the global north conversation about climate change, where it's like it's only about the climate per se and not about environment, even though environment is much more. Um, and this is a point that I think. Like David Foster, uh, David Foster Wallace, David <laughs> David Wallace Wells. I was like, they they fucking have the same name, uh, and it's a David with three names. Uh, yeah, yeah, with a W somewhere. Um, yeah, <laughs> David Wallace Wells. Um, he came out, you know, uh, with this piece. I think it was in the London Review of Books or something, and he's talked about it elsewhere. But that air pollution by itself worldwide is responsible for like 10 million deaths every year or something. And it's like, if you focused on air pollution, you would also in turn help the climate because it's like, what's fucking up the air. It's the same thing that's fucking up the climate anyway. Um, and I just, so, and I think, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's interesting. Um, and and similarly, it's like, you know, when you look at, um, you know, all the the actions and movements in the U.S. and elsewhere to like stop pipelines and mines and things like that. Um, on one level, like with the Dakota Access Pipeline, it's like the indigenous groups and other people who are there in solidarity were focusing on stopping it because pipelines leak and they destroy land and habitat and that's important both in and of itself and also like for the livelihoods of like the native nations that are there and other people um and everyone who like depends on fucking water and shit which is yeah most yeah, people last also, time i checked <laughs> yeah because well, and they the leaking can also affect water supplies and that was 
one of the big concerns exactly the, the water protectors was the term that got applied to a lot of the folks out there yes exactly and on one level i feel like that's talked about in terms of this is environmental protection but then on the other hand it's like there was a recent um piece that was put out i think by the indigenous environmental network that basically was like indigenous groups are have stopped or are in the are or are contesting like 25% or something of like north american emissions carbon emissions like through like the contestation of different pipelines um so it's like through protecting like environment and the land and the water um those groups are also like protecting the climate um all that huge ramble but um i think it's like a distinction that i didn't understand for a long time and also i also think there's like a kind of like there was a there at least from what i have heard from people who are more like in in deep with the climate environmental movements is like okay we got to stop talking about the penguins and the polar bears because it's about us and it's about the humans and it's like yes to some extent but it's like also like they're related and we gotta we gotta make that connection and so this poem i love because it is so rooted in the the topsoil and the earth um and just like i love the descriptions of the earthworm um and like and 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 how the kind of abstract idea goes so quickly into the very small image of the worm where it's like thinnest of salvations with a margin of error all that's like figurative abstract it's like the mar and then it's like the margin of error is wide as the pink gelatinous body of the earthworm aka not very wide um but <laughs> very thin in fact yeah yeah, yeah thin salvation yeah. but yeah. then and then over the course of the poem it's like it's amazing where the in the worms being described it's like they're fleeing which is like and they're like burrowing back down and then in the process they're like aerating the earth and it's like yeah that's like what earthworms do like they're so good like it's like such a great little um detail that is kind of explaining like ecosystem function of worms and stuff with soil i don't know i was just like i i was really digging that the this huge kind of climate gig is up metaphor was like getting its its legs um and it's like energy from this real like environmental attention to to the dirt well and to your point it's the human interaction with the dirt it's not like hey we gotta save the topsoil so that big trees can grow and beautiful birds can live in them or something it's like nah i'm digging the dirt and I'm aerating it maybe like an earthworm would. And also the topsoil itself is perhaps particularly important and let's pay attention to it. Um, mm. I'm glad you brought that up specifically because I do want to talk a little bit about topsoil. Um, 
as like a I lens. was hoping you would talk <laughs> to me about that as like a lens into the poem and kind of what it's about because I think there are ways again because there is that image of this like direct human topsoil interaction and there's also the call out later of this earth we packed down with our culpability like what are we doing to the planet in the literal sense of like what are we doing to the soil like the planet the physical planet um not just animals not just air but like the soil um and i think that there's a little bit of a connection being drawn in this poem and it does kind of bear out i think come to that in a second um between humanity and topsoil which is like a lot of life on earth depends on what happens with humans and how we decide to deal with what we're doing the same way that basically all organic growing things on earth are pretty dependent on topsoil and we are both humans and topsoil vanishingly small percentages of the planet <laughs> or of the living things on it so i did a little bit of research and i will share with you so yes. soil soil strata okay uh -huh. So the very the very top is the hummus or the or maybe you know this because you make books that explain this to people at a mid grade level so you probably know all this stuff. We um, don't say hummus uh, unless we're talking about the one with the two M's and that's a different book. Um, so the top is the hummus or the organic layer, which is what gets referenced here. Rich the the that thin granular layer, rich hummus, spare humility, black earth, daily lifted and blown into the Gulf of Mexico. So number one, the Sahara Desert. Third largest desert in the world after the Arctic and the Antarctic. Dust from the Sahara Desert gets blown into the Gulf of Mexico. Obviously, that's not like the loamy hummus earth that we think about, <laughs> but it happens and it's significant. And for a little bit of scale, like the Sahara Desert in size is somewhere between Brazil and the United States, two of the largest countries in the world. It, The desert expands and contracts because of, you know, everything in the world that happens. But like it's millions of square miles of desert and dust from it gets blown into the gulf of mexico there across big, the atlantic across yep all the way across okay. on the winds and there's but like there, there was a big plume this year and it happens and it leads to algae blooms in the gulf of mexico and it's like it's a whole phenomenon right so that i think is the reference being made there but anyway back to the back to the side i just wanted to make sure we touched on that a little bit anyway so the very, very top is that hummus organic layer. Then there's topsoil, which is the little one beneath that. Then there is subsoil. Then there's the parent material, it's called, and then bedrock. Those are kind mm. of the layers. Only about 2 to 10% of soil is organic material. The rest is air, water, and inorganic matter. 45% inorganic matter, like minerals and things. 25% water, 25% air, and then about 5% organic material. So that very top Man. organic layer through which so much life happens, it's it's like between 2 and 10%, probably rounded to 5 usually in a lot of the charts that you'll find and see. So not a lot. <laughs> no, Humans <laughs> are an even smaller percentage of life on Earth. And there's a lot of different ways to measure that, obviously. I think the starkest in terms of putting it in context on like a planetary level would be through gigatons of carbon. Like how much are we out here? Um, Whoa. Right. So of different life forms, uh, plants are 450 
gigatons. I believe a gigaton is a billion tons. So deal with that. Um, so yeah, so 450 <laughs> gigatons of carbon for plants, 70 gigatons for bacteria. So a big drop off. All animals, two gigatons. Humans, 0.06 gigatons. So we are a very small, in terms of like the weight of life, we are very small. Wow. But much like the topsoil, a lot kind of depends on what we decide we're up to, you know? Um, so I really like in this poem that direct connection between humans and topsoil, because I do feel like there's a similar thing here where it's a small percentage of soil overall, but it's like the really, really important actor in the whole soil situation um mm. the same way that like humans are a very small percentage of life on earth but we have a pretty outsized impact on life on earth for how much of it we are and i think that that connection is really interesting that the poem makes and i think the call out to topsoil is like really an interesting one and then pairing it which i think is really important and we haven't really gotten to this yet but i think this is a really really important part of the poem um, is the concept of repentance. And the poem's yeah. title is Topsoil in Repentance. And so I did a little bit of research into this as well, because as we said at the beginning, Sherry Shinoda is a Coptic American. She is a person of faith, deep faith, and is part of the uh, Orthodox Christian Church and the Coptic Church. And so I went to look into what does like repentance mean in that context? Cause that, you know, as an avid lover of the works of Flannery O'Connor, I know how important understanding the religious context of one's work can be. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so, I, so yeah, so I looked into <laughs> repentance a little bit and what it means in the context of the Coptic church. So this is a bit of a description of the sacrament of repentance and confession in the Coptic church. This is from CopticChurch.net. So it says in describing it, number one, you have a contrite heart and remorse for previous sins, a steadfast intention to improve, strong faith in Christ and hope in his love to forgive, and a verbal confession of sins before the priest. That's repentance and confession. I also found this about repentance from the the uh, the Coptic Church Diocese of Los Angeles, Southern California, and Hawaii. So it says this: repentance is a cry from the conscience and a revolution against the past. It is repulsion from sin, great regret, and rejection of the old state with embarrassment and shame. It is therefore said about repentance that it is a daring judge. It's about forsaking sin without returning to it. Wow. Which I find fascinating in the context of this poem, because it is this kind of really stark uh, assessment of, as it says, our culpability for the immense density of earth. It really is looking at what humans have done to the earth through this lens of repentance also means bringing a lens of sin and as the poem says salvation and i don't know exactly how 
this element works in the Coptic church, but there is this notion of humans as stewards of the earth, charged by God to be stewards of the the beasts of the field. I, again, I don't know the, the Bible verses. I don't know how it works exactly in the Coptic church, um, but it feels like there is elements of that where it's sort of like we are in some ways stewards of creation. You know, we, we are charged to be that um, by God. And in some ways, I think that may play into this description of the enormity of the loan, which has been called in full. You know, we were, we, to not care for the earth would be to sin against God, would then be to have God call the loan of the earth in, in some ways, like the earth is loaned to humanity. Like, hey, can you take care of this for me? And it's, <laughs> we're not, <laughs> we're not doing that. Um, but you know, without getting too far into that, because again, as I said, I don't really know or fully understand how that plays out in the Coptic church, but just this notion of like sin and salvation and repentance, I found really fascinating um, to see how that plays through the poem. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, because we do have up at the top, this connection of salvation with the thin layer of organic material, the topsoil, and the interaction with it possibly as that thinnest of salvations, like that little bit of, you know, I don't know. I'm I'm curious for your thoughts on <laughs> thin salvation, repentance, all of it. Um, Cause I, I found that really kind of fascinating to, to read about. Yeah. Wow. Um, no, that is all fascinating. And yeah, I mean, um, I know even even less about the Coptic Church and its beliefs, um, but I do think you're absolutely right, especially with the with the title in repentance and and all those moments. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the larger idea of the poem, it does seem clear that you know this the in in a crude way, the sin is is the the causes of climate change, um, and and kind of the the destruction um of the earth in that way um and it makes sense in my mind you know and you know and I won't put this on uh Sherry Shinoda but it's like to not do that you know we do need to reject the past in full in terms of like capitalism you know and things like that and colonialism which are you know first for the first time colonialism was was uh given a shout out in the IPCC report hey. uh, as one of the causes of climate change and so those kinds of overarching world systems that have led us here we do need to to um abolish them in my opinion um at the which... very least like even if those terms are not applied this notion of a rejection of the old state with embarrassment and shame yeah like that yeah whether you apply those terms to it explicitly yeah. or not like what's going on right now vis-a-vis -vis the environment cannot stand yeah yeah you know and like it, that that much and it's I not think a, is wrapped yeah. up in that repentance term yeah and no it's not like it can't be like a little tinkering or like an incremental thing. Like that's not going to do it. And I, I do think, yeah, that 
the language there to describe repentance really resonated with how I think about what's necessary. And that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and cry from the conscience and a revolution against the past. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That's amazing. You know, it's interesting too. thinnest of salvations with a margin of error, thinking about that also in the context of the end as, you know, um, a stay for a little while longer of execution of, of just this kind of like, partly it makes me think of the poem itself of just like finding the salvation in a way and, and finding in the moments when you're given the stay, um, like repenting in a way. Um, but, and in that, like getting some kind of salvation, um, and like being attentive to the earth and, and also like this poem itself, like attending to the beauty of, of everything, um, that you are surrounded by, um, and part of, um, I don't quite know, but that feels resonant too. Um, and then there does seem to be like, because the worm is the margin of error in a way, um, it's very interesting and I'm not sure how to like draw the simile like forward in terms of what happens to the worms. But like this, I, I find, I found this, moment fascinating when i first read it when i wasn't even thinking about all these things but like the third stanza my tines enter the ground my wrist twists the damp loam i breathe easier to see them wriggling unburied fleeing the light burrowing back down aerating this earth we have packed down with our culpability so on the one hand the in the aeration, the worms are undoing some of our packing down <laughs> with the culpability, um, which is the kind of salvation that they're providing. And it's also just fascinating, like, that they are fleeing. I mean, it's like it makes sense that the worms are fleeing the light, but then to say it that way, not what I associate one I don't know. The light is usually a good thing. <laughs> I mean, not always. I mean, that's a that's a yeah. crude way of thinking but about also, it. But well, it's like, like it's interesting. Yeah, I yeah. think also especially like, in in a somewhat religious context where you're baking the earthworm, the thinnest of salvations, with a margin of error as wide as the pink gelatinous body. Like you're making a connection there, and normally light and dark, up and down, are pretty distinct in religious stuff yeah light and up is good and god and we love it and <laughs> down is bad and the devil and hell and don't go there yeah you know so that yeah. it is particularly fascinating too yeah no and it's true and and that's i mean there is um there is kind of i mean the fact that it you know that it's the topsoil the black earth there is kind of an inversion of the i don't know traditional connotations of of light and dark in this poem um both with the worms fleeing the light and the black earth being the the topsoil or the the organic stuff that's the good stuff for some reason i i can't say exactly why but i just love the i breathe easier to see them wriggling 
it's like this relief, like, oh, thank God the worms are still here, like doing their thing. <laughs> I also get a um, sense of relief of like, oh, good. I didn't like accidentally skewer an earthworm. Yes. Also like that spade I didn't, barely misses. Yeah. And every time my tines enter the ground, my wrist twists the damp loam. I breathe easier to see them wriggling. Unbar- like, oh, good. I just dug them up. I didn't yeah. cut them in half. Yes. <laughs> yes, that too. I don't know. And 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 I'm I'm curious to see like how far you know from like a making a poem thing it's like you set up a simile or a metaphor or this kind of comparison and it's like there's sometimes a point at which it's like you think too much or the metaphor doesn't quite extend as far as the idea necessarily you know what i mean or it's like they they go a certain distance like in terms of kind of paralleling the thought that is being it's being compared to if that makes sense mm-hmm. um so i don't quite know how far the earthworm is going um but i do love that like the the also like the speaker is you know just doing the spade work and then it's like maybe this time i'm gonna skewer the worm <laughs> i don't <Yeah>. know and just <laughs> yeah. ruin my salvation it, it's like there there is that kind of like um a bit flipping a coin here like rolling the dice um and i don't know and then being like okay i didn't this time and that being a relief i don't know that i guess that's kind of like how i think of it i mean i wonder i guess the the big question that that i've maybe suggested thoughts to and i think you have too is like is the speaker repenting? I guess like there's a sense of a need for repentance, but it's like, what, what is, I'm, I'm not quite sure what the speaker's relationship to that repentance is. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's maybe intentionally vague on that point where it feels a little bit like you could read it through the lens of, okay, this is the speaker finding repentance or feeling the need for repentance while gardening. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But I think it's also perfectly easy and valid to read it as a more general commentary on humanity's need to repent for our the way we have treated the earth and our current relationship to the earth. I kind of feel those two readings with pretty equal strength throughout the poem and I find them kind of equally rewarding in terms of how they play out thematically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if one or the other was intended or if the vagueness is intended, but in reading it, I feel perfectly happy. I feel just as happy as a reader when I go down either one of those paths of a reading of the poem. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Should we read it again? Yeah, let's do it again. This is Topsoil in Repentance by Sherry Shinoda. On my mind daily with the insistence of a metronome is that thin, granular layer, rich hummus, spare humility, black earth, daily lifted and blown into the Gulf of Mexico. Thinnest of salvations with a margin of error 
wide as the pink gelatinous body of the earthworm, which my spade barely misses. And every time my tines enter the ground, my wrist twists the damp loam. I breathe easier to see them wriggling, unburied, fleeing the light, burrowing back down, aerating this earth. We have packed down with our culpability this immense density of earth, only the topmost of which can support the unimaginable numbers of us, our great warm swarm. Squinting up in immense sunlight, I hear the silent swish and tick, the back and forth rhythm, the last few seconds before midnight, the enormity of the lone, which has been called in full the hazy buzzing of the furry bees busy in the branches above my exposed neck on any given day, a stay for a little while longer of execution. So, uh, Connor. Oh! Yeah, me That's right, I'm coming to you first this time. What's up? Come at me, bro. <laughs> um, yeah. So, what what are you up to? What do you, what do you got going on? What uh, what are you watching? What are you reading? What are you listening to? I know we've both been getting into Andor. I finally caught up on one of your recommendations yes. from a previous week, Bad Sisters, which was incredible. Um, so good, so good. But what what's new? Um, what, what am I? What am I? What am I doing next? <laughs> what you got oh my god um gosh okay i'm conflicted because okay i'll I'll just recommend a couple things um i usually just do one but you do i recently made a spreadsheet of all our recommendations and realized you usually do one and sometimes i make a lot of recommendations and i felt bad well jack you got the seven recommendation slot down you know (laughs) (laughs) Um, no, it's usually just cause I'm, I'm just, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm very tunnel vision sometimes. So I want to recommend another podcast, but the reason why I'm recommending other things is because I have only been recommending podcasts and I feel like, uh, maybe that's crazy. Um, but I've been listening to five four pod um or five four uh or five two four I think it's just five four anyway, it's a podcast quote about how much the Supreme Court sucks um, <laughs> so and, a little bit different than that radio lab one that was like Supreme Court whatever whatever that, <laughs> did they do that I feel like they did that at some oh time. yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah, it's not Radiolab, not at all. No, this um, is this sounds yeah. a little crunchier. It's yeah, it's uh, it is definitely a bit on the left, and there's a lot of swearing. Um, but basically, it's three lawyers, and they most of the episodes, they just they talk about one case. Some are recent from like you know, uh, the the latest. Supreme Court shit show docket, but they also do ones from the past that have been like important or interesting in some way. Um, 
And yeah, I I've basically just listened to like a ton of them because a they're very funny, and the but the thing is that like so partly they like demystify the Supreme Court, and it's and that's just helpful where it's like they're not these divine beings who are you know sensing out which obviously no one thinks anymore because of what the fuck they're doing about with Dobbs overturning Roe and all the bullshit that they're doing because the thing that's weird is like I think it's like people know that but then there's still not that much reporting or coverage that's like kind of honest about that oh man so it's like if you're interested in it but don't want to like wade through blah 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 it's like it's hard to find so i was i was very happy when i found this um and i also think i didn't go to law school i was a paralegal my parents are lawyers so i have like a probably above average tolerance for legalese but not that much and i do think that they do a good job like a like explaining the details but also like the stakes and it's like why certain cases matter and like what effect they had and it's like those kinds of things and then they also you know get into like what is the they they often they also have like their own kind of position on what are the like ideological positions um that are driving these decisions and things like that so I found it very fun. It's 5-4 pod and I recommend it. But because I can't <laughs> just recommend only podcasts. I will um, I will tell you that now I mean you're about to break this spell, but other than okay. that so uh oh god, I'm so Five <laughs> of the last six episodes you've recommended podcasts, and the one that you didn't recommend a podcast was Bad Sisters. So yeah, that, that adds up. This is good. This is good stuff. <laughs> I know. I yeah. Um okay, this is not a real recommendation, but as you told me, and then I confirmed and then proceeded to watch the first three episodes on Criminal Minds is back <laughs> and it's fucking awesome <laughs> and so hilarious and funny and crazy oh my god as uh, soon as i saw the trailer i was like oh they found a way to make criminal minds even wilder i need to tell connor yeah. immediately <laughs> yeah i yeah um so yeah that's back everything is as is right again in the universe <laughs> listening to lefty um, pods and watching criminal minds <laughs> cognitive dissonance no <laughs> the c strat life uh, okay no my actual other recommendation is i haven't yet finished it but um sarita and i started listening to the audiobook of the night watchman which is a novel by the great Louise Erdrich. This was recommended. Also, shout out to my dad who read it for his book club um, and was singing its praises. And oh, I love this book. We are, 
Yeah. <laughs> um, I and like it's so good. Him coming into a room, holding it, going, I love this book. This book is so good. <laughs> I read it in my book club. And now I think you should too. That's exactly how my dad sings. That's yes. how he does. That's how he did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. No. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, no, it's like a really good and it's loosely based off, I think, her or one of the characters is based off of um, her Erdrich's grandfather or maybe great grandfather who was um, a leader in of the Turtle Mountain Reservation in North Dakota. But it takes place um, in the 1950s um, on Turtle Mountain and then also in Minneapolis. Um, and it's kind of about the the like termination phase of like the U.S. settler colonial project, um, which was basically when the U.S. government was like, okay, we want reservation land. So what if we just end tribes and then force them into cities? Um, and what if we spin it and <laughs> there's a there's an amazing part in the beginning where they're like first learning about the proposed bill and it's called emancipation. Um, oh and it's God. they're just like, uh, oh, yeah, we're being freed from our from our land. Uh, uh, freed from being native. Anyway, it's good job the government. A, thanks a lot. <laughs> um, I had only kind of recently started to learn about that part of history, but I do think it's a very undertold. I mean, basically all of native history in the U.S. is undertold. But anyway, I think this is just like another. It's a big moment in the long history. So. It's kind of fascinating for that reason, um, but it's just like it's a wonderful. We, we haven't finished it yet, but um, it's just a really good, amazing book. And Erdrich, Luis Erdrich, is just amazing, um, and all the characters are just like, I don't know, you just they're so good. Um, I don't like I don't have anything smart to say except that it's a really good book <laughs> so far. So I recommend it. That sounds um, good. That sounds really good. <laughs> yeah. Amazingly, yeah. it's not about the Tom Petty song, The Night Watchman from his Hard Promises album. I'm shocked to learn. <laughs> Here I was thinking this was going to be a book about Tom Morello's acoustic album Alter Ego when he makes acoustic music as The Night Watchman. Oh gosh! <laughs> Who knew that it wouldn't be about those things? Um, yeah, it's not <laughs> incredible. Incredible yeah. to learn. No, it sounds really good. I should probably um, check that out. Yeah, it's. And good. you recommend it's the good. audiobook? It's a good audiobook. Yeah, she reads it. Um, oh wow! And okay, cool. and does a really is doing a great, great job. I think. Um, and it's. I mean, I will say, like, it's it's a classic. Um, for people who have read other Louise Erdrich books, she has a lot of characters a lot of the time and different sort of narratives that are being woven together. This one isn't as complex as some of the in in that respect as some of the books that she's written, but 
it does take a little bit of time and focus to like get the characters down, but not, I wouldn't say it's not that much. And it, that's something that's probably easier to do, at least for me reading it, uh, in a, in a book book, but I've been loving the audiobook. Yeah. Well, Jack, what about you? Um, <laughs> do you have two to seven things you've been taking in in some <sighs> form or fashion? You know me too well. Um, <laughs> I'm limiting myself to two because I'm shamed by this list. Oh, Last no, time I made Jack. a single recommendation was five episodes ago. <laughs> Since then, it's been at least two, if not more. Sorry. Um, no, okay. So number one, there's a new album by two of my favorite artists, and it's them together, Mavis Staples and Levon Helm. Um, Levon Helm in his late career. So he had throat cancer and then he got better for a while. And he did a couple of albums, dirt farmer and electric dirt that were like Americana roots music albums. The first one was mostly acoustic. The electric dirt album was more electric instruments, but he had a core band at that time that was his touring band. But they also did these things called midnight rambles at his farm in upstate New York. Um, I could have and wish I had gone to them when I was in college in Vermont, but I never got over there. It was a little pricey, but still, I should have just done it. Oh, well. Um, Levon Helm died in 2012, which is very sad mm. for everybody. Um, love him because my first instrument was the drums and he was a singing drummer. And I watched The Last Waltz as a little kid. And the first song I ever said was my favorite song was Ronnie Hawkins' version of Who Do You Love from The Last Waltz. Levon Helm on drums. Um, and he and, and the staple singers did a really iconic version of The Weight. Oh, yeah. Pulled in the Nazareth, was feeling about half as dead. I could lay my head. Mister, could you tell me where a man might find a bed? Just grin and shove my hand. No, was all he said. Anyway. He plays drums. He sings. It's great. Um, but they did an album together because Mavis Staples, she was touring with some of the albums she had done at the time. And she joined him and that band at the farm in New York for a midnight ramble. And it was recorded in an album of some songs from that. Maybe all the songs from it. I don't actually know for sure. Um, came out and it's just so good because she's an incredible singer. She does almost all the singing. His voice was hit and miss after he had his throat surgeries and everything. Um, so some nights he would be able to sing quite a bit. Some nights he could barely sing at all. He does sing a little bit on the weight, but not on any of the other songs really. But it's great because it's this band, which is just a great tight, like roots Americana band. So it's like drums, guitar, piano, sometimes organ, bass, like backup singers yeah. singing really good, like those kind of loose front porchish harmonies. Um, oh. and Mavis Staples as the lead voice. And it's just like, it's really good. And I'm not one to go all like, oh, they don't play real instruments anymore, blah, 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 whatever. But it's, <laughs> it's you know, that that's annoying. I listened to Shakira's guest with the Black Eyed Peas Girl Like Me literally today. I listened to Blackpink today. I'm all about that electronic high production music, whatever. Blackpink? Catchy. Black yeah, they're very catchy. Kill this love. Da, 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 da. <laughs> love it. Um, 
but it is really cool. Like I really like the kind of simple live recording of that kind of a band because it just sounds good. And I like that kind of like not particularly highly produced. I mean, it is to sound that good, obviously, but like, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's the people playing the instruments on that night. They're good. It's not perfect. And also it's like a nice mix. Um, and the album starts with this great song called This Is My Country, which is really cool in its message, but it's particularly cool to have Mavis Staples, who was like there for the civil rights movement, singing it. Because um, the whole point is like, there's a lot of people who try to say uh, that I shouldn't be able to say this is my country and uh, maybe they should shut up. Hell yeah. It's my country, my country. Before they give in, they'd rather fuss and fight than say it's my country, my country. I pay so yeah, and, yeah. It's and like the whole album is kind of like that. You know, there's yeah. fast songs and slow songs and all that kind of stuff, but like it's got it's that grooving. vibe. It's got that yeah. vibe. It's so good. They are two of my favorite artists in all of music and they're together and mm -hmm. it's so mm -hmm. good. Uh, so yeah, it's called carry me home and it's Mavis Staples and Levon Helm. Yeah. Loving it. Just oh, yeah. loving it. And because I cannot resist, I cannot keep it to one. You might think I'm going to talk about Lady Lichur, the queen of grime music, who I've recently developed a strong appreciation for at long last. I'm many years behind that trend, but no. Check her out if you want to. I want to talk about Happen Films, Connor. Happen Films. Ooh. Do you know Happen about films. Happen Films on YouTube? No, I do not know about it. Okay, well, they call themselves Happen Films Stories for a Changing World. And when they say Ooh. changing world, they mean climate changing world. It's all these great little documentaries, mini docs, and they've even done some longer stuff about people who are doing like regenerative farming and food rights and indigenous food sovereignty and permaculture stuff. So they visit people who are doing this work. Longtime listeners of the show will be shocked to learn that they do this in Australia and New Zealand. <laughs> oh, wow, Jack. I, I just... Showing your true colors. I know. Once um, again. I think part of that is because a lot of this permaculture movement started there. Like there was a guy and there was a university guy and they're like kind of a center of learning about how to do it. But it's like how to create food forests and all this kind of stuff. And it's very much about this idea of like restorative farming practices actually also producing huge amounts of food because what you can do um, in like a permaculture food forest, the idea is that you replicate the structure of a forest. So you have a canopy and an over canopy and you have a bush level and you have a whatever, but you put in all of those levels, food producing plants. So you have a canopy of 
like fruit trees. I, I don't know if that's accurate in terms of heights and things. And then you have an understory of like rosemary bushes or something. Um, but like you, you find, and there's climbers and you have climbing mm. beans or whatever. I don't know. Um, but like you build a forest out of food producing plants and number one, they're more productive because they're all helping each other the way plants in a forest help each other grow. And then you yeah. also have it as like a self-sustaining entity. You don't have to go out and weed all the time. You have to go out and do whatever because it's actually planted intentionally so that it maintains itself. And it's like so cool. Um, so if That's you go awesome. to Happen Films on YouTube, there's tons of these videos and they're so interesting where you have these people who have just like taken their little plot of suburban land or maybe they have like a, a quarter acre, a little bit of a larger piece. In some instances, it's that smaller, smaller, and they've turned it into like a food forest or they've turned it into a permaculture thing. And some of them are even, you know, different levels of off the grid. And it's interesting to have these folks talk about how the process of getting off the grid for them was very similar on a different timescale to how we ended up on the grid where they just kind of move a little bit at a time. Like, oh, maybe we don't need to be on the electric grid as much as we thought we did because we don't need a TV and we don't need this and that and the other thing. And so are they going without? In a lot of instances, yeah, they're living a life that looks pretty different from the lives that many of us lead, but they've replaced everything with something else. And so it's not like they feel, so they say, who knows? I, I think it's probably true. Like they don't feel deprived of these things. They've made an intentional yeah. choice to do something else. Like, okay, we don't really use our car anymore. We mostly bike around and we chose to do that because we don't want to use our car. We still get the places we need to go, but we decided that we don't want to use a car. It limits how far we can go and how we get things and all that. But at the same time, we would rather have that be the challenge and put our time into that than have the car or like we don't have traditional jobs. Our cash flow is a lot lower. It limits sort of some aspects of life. On the other hand, because we are living a low cash flow life, we also don't have to have a job that takes us away from our family for eight or 10 hours a day. We actually get to yeah. do this all the time and focus yeah. on like community networks and, and all that kind of stuff. So Happen Films, just a huge library of mini documentaries. Yeah, no, I love that. That's that's awesome. Yeah, I'm gonna check that out. That's great. I think you'll yeah, like it. I mean, the one that no, I started with yeah. is like the biggest scale one, which is this like 30 minute documentary about a guy who replanted an entire forest over the course of like 30 years. It's not related to the food Whoa. stuff as much, <laughs> but this guy basically bought a huge chunk of land and he basically turned it into what is now a forest. Like it's wild. It's called the title of the video is man spends 30 years turning degraded land into massive forest fools and dreamers colon regenerating a native forest. And it is wild. Cause he literally wow. did that. He like bought a chunk of land and was like, you know what? I'm buying this land to turn it into a big forest the way it used to be. And now it is cause he did it. Whoa. I know. Damn, I know. It's so cool. So I, if there's, I recommend happen films and just like kind of browse through and see what speaks to you. But as a starting point, that might be the best because it doesn't get into the alternative lifestyle stuff as much. I mean, this guy has a very alternative lifestyle, but not in the same way. <clears throat> Amazing. Amazing.
Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Those reviews help us with the algorithm and are the best way for us to find new listeners. Do you have thoughts about this poem? Or is there a poem or poet you'd like us to cover on a future episode? We would love to hear from you, and there are tons, tons of ways to get in touch. Yes, you can send us an email to closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com or find us on Twitter. I'm at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. And the show is at Close Talking. On Instagram, we are at Close Talking Poetry. And we are on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. And speaking of all of those many and varied social media platforms, a very special thank you to our incredible social media manager, Corey China. Woo woo. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Come back again. Please come back. Just one more time. Door's always open. Okay, bye. I see ya.